Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. In the weeks leading up to Easter, we have been part of a global movement with uh, churches around the world called Lent. And now on Palm Sunday, we have our final turn, our final approach, and that approach is to the cross of Jesus Christ. This week, I, I got to confess to you, it's, it's, it's been difficult to know like how to put this in a sermon and, and just talk about it because the cross, it's ground zero. It, it's, I think it's like Moses when he realized in the burning bush that he was on holy ground and God says, you are, and take off your shoes. I feel like that's where we are this morning with the cross. We are on holy ground. So how do we mark this? And I've just felt led this week to mark it by being simple, to be simple as we come to the cross. And so what's that mean? That means this morning we're going to go into the text that Jenna read for us and look at the three statements that John records Jesus saying from the cross. We will look at them one at a time, explain them, but then after each one asks, what does Jesus' statement want me to incorporate into my life? How do we find a place for this statement in my heart? So, here's the first statement John records Jesus saying from the cross. Would you read aloud together with me? When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. This is Jesus fulfilling his responsibility as the oldest son. His mother Mary is a, probably a widow in her early 50s. Notice there are no other sons present, and we believe that's because they did not yet believe in Jesus. We, we know that James, the next oldest brother, didn't believe in Jesus until Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. So there's no other brothers, and it's up to Jesus to take care of his mom. And you know, right, this is before Social Security or Florida or Arizona were invented. <laughs> in ancient times, the eldest son was responsible to care for his family. And so we see Jesus looking out from the cross, seeing his mother, seeing John, and actually in language from a legal adoption ceremony, saying, woman, your son, and to John, your mother. I wanna point out two things around this. First, and this is some take home for us, this statement, we remember that Jesus on the cross looking 
at his mom, looking at John, looking at all of his children. The cross makes family. The cross makes homes. The cross, when we connect with Jesus, it's not just that we have a new relationship with him vertically, but we immediately also have new relationships horizontally. We are reminded, we say this a lot at Waterstone, I think the American church needs to hear it a lot, that our relationship with Jesus Christ is personal, yes. Private, never. When we receive Christ, we automatically become family. The cross makes family. So can I meddle in your business a little bit this morning? I'm going to. Why do you come to church? Do you come hopefully to get a good sermon that will help your life get a little better? Do you come to sing some songs that you really like, kind of be entertained a bit? Or do you come to church because you know as you carry the cross you need to be with family? Thank you. <laughs> we come, even driving here, may I suggest, driving here to be a part of this, but thinking, today, when I'm in here, who am I going to make room for in my life? Whose name am I going to learn and maybe even be bold enough to ask in these greeting times that you've probably noticed we've been doing intensely? Because we want to be a more sticky church. Maybe even saying, is there anything I could pray for you this week? Could we take some bolder risks at coming here knowing that this is family? What kind of church would we be if we practiced this? The second thing. It's interesting, John wants us to know this, that when Jesus says, woman, your son, it's the second time in the gospel that, John, that Jesus has said, woman, calling his mom woman. The first time was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry back in John chapter 2, when Jesus turned the water into wine, his first what the, what the writer calls the public sign, the first miracle or demonstration that Jesus is God's son. It was an interesting story. I wish we had time to tell it, but, you know, they ran out of wine at a wedding reception, and Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to, and knowing who her son is and how, you know, he can operate, he says, uh, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Do something. <laughs> and Jesus says, woman, <laughs> My time is not yet come. But we all know that Jesus did change water into wine because you cannot say no to your mom. <laughs> and so he puts on this demonstration of what the, the new heavens and the new earth is going to be a, like, like a place of overflowing wine and feasting. Jesus wants us to know that whenever we think of heaven, this is what we think of, the joy of a wedding ceremony, a wedding reception. That's what being with God is like. But we see that what John's pointing out is at the very end and the very beginning, Jesus' mom 
is an important part of his life. In fact, we see it through all his life. When Jesus was eight days old, he was brought into a temp- the temple and dedicated uh, according to the Old Testament law and uh, carried into that ceremony. And it's then that uh, one of the prophets in the temple who was waiting for Messiah said to Mary, a soul will pierce your own soul too. We see Mary as a part of Jesus' entire life. And I don't think it's just a mom's love for her son, though it is that, and there's nothing like that. But we also see that this is part of God's reminder to his son that all of this is a plan, that all of this is not happening without control, accidentally. No, no. The the casting of lots, as, as we read in John, the casting of lots for his clothes, that was predicted a thousand years before in a song called Psalm 22. The, the beatings, the insults, and even this, Psalm 22, 9 through 11, a thousand years before Jesus goes to the cross, you brought me out of the womb. <laughs> I wonder if this was in Jesus' mind. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. All of this, a combination of a plan that is unfolding. Mary being to Jesus, an encouragement from the Heavenly Father that he is near. Russell Moore, one of our great theologians of today, writes for Christianity Today, reflecting on this. Even as Jesus' disciples fled from him in shame, he could cite Psalm 22 while looking out from the cross at his mother. He could see in her an important part of his own personal story, a story that testified to the faithfulness and loving kindness of God. In the moment of his greatest desolation, Jesus could see the invisible outline of God's mercy and presence there in the one from whom in his human nature he had learned to trust a fathering, nurturing God. The horror of the scene was not the whole story. The judgment of the Roman Empire was not the final word. He knew that since he was cradled in the arms of his mother. Several years ago, I clipped an article out of Atlantic Monthly that was about hospice care. And it was a series of interviews with uh, German nurses who worked in a hospice care uh, facility. And they reported in the article that the most common word heard by people about to die, you could probably guess, was mom, mama, mother. And I wonder if perhaps Jesus from the cross seeing his mother, and I wonder if the reason that maybe many of us in our dying moment will remember our moms is because it's at the moment of death where we are completely and utterly childlike and dependent on someone, on a story that will take us into what's next. 
I wonder today if one of the reasons you've come, and I wonder if today if one of the reasons that Jesus from the cross speaks this word about his mother into your world is that everyone in this room, well, two truths. One, your death is impending. Sorry to be a bummer on Palm Sunday. But the truest existential thing I could say to you is that you will die. And truth number two, everyone in this room walked in here believing a story about what happens when we die. You have never lived a second of your life without faith in a story. Never. You right now are trusting that you're part of some reality that explains what happens when you die. And today I want you to hear Jesus' words from the cross, that there is a compelling story, a story where Jesus, days before he died, hours before he died, said, I have to leave now, but I'm going to a place where there are many rooms. It's my father's house. And if I go, I will prepare a place for you, and I will come back for you, that you may be where I am. That's a story, a compelling story, and one that we believe both human hearts and human history have followed up with what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. He's alive. He walked out of his own grave by his own power, the only person in history to do that, all evidence in our Western societies and around the world, historical evidence supports this. And so I guess the word from the cross for you, first of all, is this. Who are you trusting with your impending death? Let's read the second statement from the cross, verses 28 and 29. Aloud together. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. The second statement, I thirst. Now, why do we think Jesus says, I thirst? I think the obvious answer might be, well, he's thirsty. He's, he's in an arid climate. It's the heat of the day. He's been beaten. He's dehydrated. Of course he's thirsty. I submit to you, that's not it. There's more. Why? Well, the flow of the narrative, if you were to read earlier in the Gospels, earlier in John even, before the first trial, Jesus was blindfolded and beaten in his face with bare fists. After that part of the first trial, he was taken out and scourged with 39 lashes, a, 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 a collection of strings of leather with on the end pieces of bone and stone and metal tied on the end, and 39 times ripped down into his back and pulled out so that his back was nothing but ribbons of skin. Then he's nailed to a cross. 
And during all of that time, of a full day of struggle and suffering, there was not a word of Jesus saying, ouch, or stop, or that hurts. Not a word. In fact, we hear the echoes of Isaiah 700 years prior saying he is like a sheep being led to the slaughter who does not open his mouth. So why would we think that it's just, I'm thirsty, can we take a Gatorade break, please? Mm -mm. There is much more going on here than just Jesus being thirsty. First, we see from the text that what he's offered to drink is the wine vinegar. It's a sour kind of, uh, you know, uh, a drink that they often gave to people who were being crucified, not only because it tastes horrible, but also to tell them, you're gone. You're dead. That's the drink of the dead. This is not to assuage his thirst. This is to say, we hate you, we're done with you. We also know that in Scripture, this idea of thirst, I I think what Jesus is actually getting to with his saying, I thirst, is the metaphor throughout all of Scripture where God talks about the human heart uh, suffering from thirst. We see it in the, the Psalms. And by the way, I think that's why John says, that this is all Scripture being fulfilled. And even in the psalm, again, Psalm 22, we read, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust. Jesus is dying and the thirst is a part of it. And he even, a thousand years earlier, this was all, all scripted. And so Jesus would die of thirst, but not just physical thirst, spiritual thirst. In the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, we run into this throughout, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Psalms, where the human condition is described as thirst. Not physical thirst needing liquid water, but soul thirst needing living water. The human soul, since we took reality into our own hands and were kicked out of the garden, the soul has been thirsty ever since. And it explains really what we're talking about, mass shootings and great evil in the world and and struggle with sex and and substance abuse and and everything that we're trying to, to drink to fill our souls that's so thirsty because we can no longer have access to the garden and live face to face with God. Soul thirst. Jeremiah We see uh, just one glimpse of the prophet. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Thirst. You know, Jesus himself talked a lot about human thirst. Not physical, spiritual. And he talked about it as a place called hell. Now, I struggle with hell. I struggle to understand what it is. I believe it's a place. I believe it's not a, 
I believe it's a place of torment. And do you know the reason why I believe this? Is because Jesus talked about it so much. We don't like that. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to think of Jesus being the main one in Scripture who talked about hell. But he did because the stakes are high here. Jesus once told a story in Luke 16 about a rich man and a beggar. The rich man is unnamed because he didn't know God and God didn't know him. The beggar is named Lazarus because he knows God and God knows him. The rich man had everything you could want in life, everything, and he didn't need God. The beggar waited for Lazarus to, uh, the rich man, the Lazarus, sorry, the Lazarus waited for the rich man to put his trash on the curb so he could eat food. The rich man dies and goes to a place that the Old Testament calls Hades, a place of the death, death where it's separated from the presence of God. The beggar, Lazarus, dies and he goes to what the Old Testament calls Abraham's bosom, the place in the presence of God. In Hades, the rich man, <laughs> he commands Abraham to command the beggar to go stick his finger in some water and come down there and put it on his tongue so he could have relief from the torment. Two things to notice. Number one, <laughs> I th and hell is always going to be a hard thing, but I think this helps a little bit. I think sometimes we have this view of hell where people die not knowing Jesus which should very much motivate us, but they die not knowing Jesus, and then after death, they, they see God, and they say, whoa, wow, okay, I see it now. I see it now, and I, I want to go to heaven, and I repent, and God says, nope, too late, and he turns it up to 450 degrees and cooks them. I think Sometimes that's what we think. You need to know that that's not the biblical view of hell. We see it in passages like this. When a person is in hell, it's not a conversion experience. They don't suddenly say, oh, I want God now. The reason they're in hell is because they didn't want God and they don't want him now in hell. There's no evidence in this story or anywhere else that anyone in hell wants out. They are right where they want to be. They never wanted God in this life. Why would they want him in the next? They are in an ocean sucking in the salt water, going deeper and deeper in thirst. That's what hell is. That's what this man is doing. Send Lazarus. To, he's an errand boy. He's sucking on human power. Send him to do what I want him to do. There's no change of heart, and he doesn't want out. Hell is a place of misery, not just externally, but even more internally, where the human soul keeps doing what it does to try and live life without God and without his presence. That's hell. 
Can I say respectfully, kids in the room, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Your heart will never be happy. When I was nine years old, I received Jesus into my life. I walked down after a service. It wasn't a church where they did altar calls, but I don't remember what the text was, but the pastor said that it's not hell, it wasn't hellfire and brimstone. It wasn't the torment piece. It was this, that if you die and you don't know Jesus, you never get to live with God after you die. And I knew as a nine-year-old, I did not want that. So I went down and I told the pastor, hey, I don't understand all that this is, but I know I need Jesus. And I became a Christian. Some of you in this room, Right now, Jesus is knocking on your heart's door. You know that if you were to die, you would live in an eternity without him. And that's the worst thing. And so right now, where you are, if you want to come talk after, but just say, Jesus, I believe, I, I receive you, I need you. Save me. Save me. I thirst. As we, in a moment, in a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's Supper, but I want us to be thinking this way as we come to the stations of communion around the room. It's this. That, I mean, do we understand this? Do we understand this? That Jesus did not just be beaten for you. Jesus was not just insulted for you. Jesus did not just die for you. But Jesus thirsted for you. He experienced hell for you. The Father turned away, and Jesus experienced an eternal thirst so that you would not have to. Do you understand? Jesus took the desert so you could have the garden. Jesus took eternal thirst so that you could have a river of life flowing in you. Jesus went to hell so you could go to heaven. That is our Savior. Third and final statement from the cross. Let's read it together, chapter, verse 30. Out loud, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I would submit to you that... Uh, this word, it is finished, it's one word in the Greek language, is the most featured tattoo in the Christian world. Tetelestai, it is finished. It means paid in full. It's actually a bit weak in English. In the original, it's an intense verb tense, which means utterly finished, and it's an active, which means not it is finished, but I utterly finished it. Jesus finished it. What's the it? Well, that's the rest of the New Testament, but we see it in verses like this, 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. To bring us 
to God. What's finished? Everything necessary. Jesus laying down his life, dying, tasting hell, so that we could be brought to God. The, the infinity that transversed the distance between us and God, Jesus has filled every square inch, and there's nothing more to do. He did it. That's the beauty of Christianity. In a word, it's tetelestai. It's finished. All other religions, it's a work in progress. The Buddha. I respect much in, uh, in the, the Buddha and much of his teachings, and especially his teachings on us not being selfish as a key to happiness. That's true. Much to respect about the Buddha, but Buddha's last words were these. Strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. And hope you make it to nirvana. Jesus' last words, done. It's finished. I utterly completed it. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. And so, quickly... If that's enough to satisfy God, what Jesus did, how come it's so hard for us sometimes to be satisfied with what Jesus has done? That's the struggle. In our heads sometimes, like, I believe it's finished. I believe Jesus did everything to, to you know, t assuage my thirst. But we wrestle with it, don't we? I think we wrestle with it in two interesting ways. One, not interesting, like painful, like frustrating ways what I would call an, an inferior deficit. I think there are, uh, all of us, in, in some ways, we wrestle with this by saying, well, yeah, I, okay, Jesus finished, but man, I sure wish I looked like she did. I sure wish I had a six-pack like his. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish I had that job. Uh, I, and, and we think these these like lies in our head, like I'm, the way I think is so terrible. The way I look is so ugly. The we hurt ourselves. We cut ourselves. We, we, we just live in this torment of needing more to assuage the thirst in our soul. We have these inferior, inferiority deficits. And what's even hard is then we, in our friendships, and in our families, we walk around, and people know that you have an inferiority deficit because you're always, like, fishing for compliments or you're, tr you're trusting human people to tell you I'm pretty and I'm smart and uh, I'm attractive and I'm successful. I mean, we're, we're, we're always, like, wanting that from other people, and it crushes them, and it's never enough for you. You just go deeper and deeper. Do you know, a, like, a test of this, by the way? Well, two tests. One, a test of this in your life, you know you're, you're struggling with this when you become so defensive in life. Like, if anyone says anything, like, remotely, constructively critical to you, it's like the apocalypse has happened. <laughs> and you, you, like, emotionally leave the room or physically leave the room. You can't take it. It's because you're not understanding that it's finished, that you are a child of God that you are blindingly, brilliantly beautiful because you are His. No one else's opinion comes remotely close to that of you. We need to believe the gospel and rest 
in being his child. The second way is a superiority uh, deficit where we think there are other people out there that we're better than. Now, I know no one in this room thinks this way. We think there are people out there because of their lifestyles, because of their choices, that they don't deserve God's grace. And you know what we should say to that? You're right. They don't deserve God's grace just like you didn't deserve God's grace. It's grace. No one deserves it. You see, the inferior complex is much about us. The superiority complex is we forget that it's finished cosmically, that God is also at work around the world and with the world, with every ethnicity, with every people group, with every person. You know, <laughs> we, we camp on John 3.16, and that's good. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have the undying life of God. And we say, yes. God's love, and let's take God's love. We forget John 3.17 as a church. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Waterstone Community Church, about to step on some toes. Sometimes I hear things around the building. Sometimes I hear things in conversations with you. You have forgotten John 3.17. Jesus loves gay people. Jesus loves the transgendered community. He welcomes them to the cross. Just because you don't approve of their lifestyle, even if they're not Christians, does not mean that God does not want to meet them at the cross. Waterstone. God loves all ethnicities, all nations, all peoples. Waterstone. God loves Republicans. And God loves Democrats. Thanks for clapping for both, Charlie. You know, we could keep going, but we're hearing the cross. It is finished. I've utterly finished it. So why in the world are we still trying to complete it? By filling our inferiority and our superiority. Believe the gospel. You are a child of God blindingly, brilliantly beautiful. And it's with those words that we now prepare to the table. If I could call the stations to take their place. We're going to come in a moment with a a bit of a liturgy from John Bunyan, a great Puritan pastor. Bunyan once made the statement that the only way that Jesus would not embrace us, the only way we would fall short of the embrace of Christ is if Jesus had to leave heaven and go back into the grave. I'm going to say that again. The only way you and I could fall short of the embrace of Jesus Christ is if Jesus were to leave heaven and go back to the grave. He wants to embrace you.